And now for introductions. We are joined by Dr. Sonam Kiwalker, a practicing rheumatologist with the Vancouver Clinic. She earned her medical degree in Pune, India, and then completed her residency and chief residency in internal medicine at Rochester General Hospital in Rochester, New York, followed by a rheumatology fellowship here in Portland at OHSU. And uh, Dr. Kiwalker, as many of us know, has been extremely active in her role as a teacher, very generous with her time for our own Providence Internal Medicine residents. And she's also Associate Program Director for Legacy Salmon Creek Internal Medicine Residency. Dr. Kiwalker is currently pursuing a master's in education for health professionals at Johns Hopkins University. And in her spare time, and she does have some, uh, she loves cooking and hiking around the Pacific Northwest with her husband and daughter. Dr. Kiwalker, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Um, so good morning everyone. Um, I am here uh, to talk about axial spondyloarthritis, formerly known as ankylosing spondylitis. I have no disclosures. And these are our learning objectives. By the end of the session, this is what I hope to make sure we all understand and embrace these concepts. Develop an awareness of axial spondyloarthritis as a treatable cause of back pain. Many of you I understand are working uh, in the primary care clinic and we do see a lot of back pain. So one of the major goals for this, uh, for this uh, topic would be to identify axial spondyloarthritis, kind of identifying a needle from the haystack. Recognize an inflammatory back pain pattern as a typical presentation for axial spondyloarthritis. Identify other common clinical features of axial spondyloarthritis that occur outside the spine. Understand appropriate testing of a patient with chronic back pain that you suspect axial spondyloarthritis and then apply criteria for appropriate and timely referral. Uh, gain knowledge of basic principles of diagnosis and treatment. So with that, let's go to case one. So this is a 34 year old male. And he comes to you, you're a primary care practitioner. And he says he has this back pain that started six months ago. It's kind of an annoying back pain. It's low. Um, it's not relieved by rest. And what happens? He goes to bed. He's then woken up by this nagging back pain at about 2 or 3 a.m. And he has to get up, move, walk a little, stretch a little, and then go back to bed. Pretty annoying to his wife. His symptoms most severe in the morning and they improve with some activity. He has tried some over-the-counter uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which was partially effective. Um, so he comes to the primary care practitioner. Uh, L-spine x-ray is ordered, and there are some degenerative changes. Uh, the primary care physician refers them to physical therapy with some minimal benefit. 
and then was finally referred to the pain clinic. A physiatrist sees him. And this is what the physiatrist notes. On palpation of the left sacroiliac joint, there is some tenderness. There is no apparent peripheral synovitis, so none of his peripheral joints are swollen. There is no enthesitis. So just as a reminder, enthesitis is inflammation where the tendon or the ligament inserts on the bone. So there is no apparent enthesitis. There is no dactylitis. So again, a quick reminder about that. Dactylitis is the inflammation or swelling of the whole digit, be it a complete finger or a toe. So there were none of these things. No synovitis, no enthesitis, no dactylitis. So some further imaging and laboratory studies are performed by the physiatrist. Pelvis X-ray was done. Pretty normal looking at the SI joints. A CRP was done, which was slightly elevated above the normal. And a HLA B27 was done, which was positive. Because he has kind of not great, but an OK response to NSAIDs. Meloxicam, a prescription NSAID was tried. Meloxicam 50 milligram, uh, 15 milligram was prescribed and referred to rheumatology. So now this patient comes to rheumatology. And then he is asked about back pain, some specific questions about inflammatory back pain, and we'll visit this inflammatory back pain criteria in just a few slides. Very important when you are trying to diagnose someone who you suspect for axial spondyloarthritis, formerly known as ankylosing spondylitis. On further history, there is no uveitis, there is no inflammatory bowel disease or skin psoriasis. Negative family history for axial spondyloarthritis as well. So the question is, what further labs or imaging studies might you want to order? And I've given you the answer there. Pelvis and lumbar MRI might be the next steps that you might want to consider. Because remember, his x-rays didn't show much. Which therapeutic intervention might you want to recommend? And we will talk about therapeutic interventions to the end of the talk. So, he first went to his physical uh, PCP, was sent to physical therapist, was then sent to pain clinic physiatry, and then he came to rheumatology. As we recall, x-rays didn't show much, and now we have the MRI of the pelvis, which you can see in all the four panels. I want you to concentrate your attention on panel C, where the changes are most prominent. What do you see over here? You see bone marrow edema. Um, that is because of the dusting of the lymphocytes on either side of the sacroiliac joint, which is a hallmark feature in axial spondyloarthritis. And if you do a L-spine MRI, you would see the same uh, bone marrow edema changes on the stir image. Uh, that you see on uh, these bolded red arrows over here. With that, let's go on to the next section of the talk, 
clinical manifestations and epidemiology of axial spondyloarthritis. Before we go over there, let's just think about this case one, right? We do, as a rheumatologist, I do see these cases often in my clinic. However, if you look at the time frame, the patient started to have back pain about six months ago, and then pretty quickly he moved through different specialists coming to rheumatology. And that's a little atypical, I would say. Unfortunately, these patients are in the community going to an orthopedic doctor, a pain clinic, chiropractors, you know, they, they bounce back and forth between different specialists and then finally land in uh, the rheumatology office. I won't be surprised if the delay is about seven years. So something to keep in mind. We are going to talk about the inflammatory back pain criteria to help us diagnose this condition early on. So before we talk about the complete spectrum of axial spondyloarthritis, which is a newer term, let's go back and revive our memory about ankylosing spondylitis, something that we have all seen in textbooks when we were medical students. So ankylosing spondylitis, it's a chronic inflammatory disease. The typical sites that are affected are the axial skeleton, peripheral joints, extra articular organs, which we will talk about. The cardinal signs are chronic. That means more at least more than three months. Inflammatory back pain, which we are going to talk about. There could be impaired spinal mobility, right? Because this is kind of the end spectrum of the axial spondyloarthritis. There is diminished chest expansion, and you can imagine this must be a problem if this poor patient has pneumonia. Think about pulmonary toilet. This could be a problem. Patient could have enthesitis. They could have uveitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, skin psoriasis, all associated um, clinical features with ankylosing spondylitis. And the hallmark of this condition, ankylosing spondylitis, is radiographic sacroiliitis. And you see this familiar bamboo spine and a stooped over posture. And these are some of the things that um, I would include in a patient's history and physical examination and workup if I suspect a patient with ankylosing spondylitis slash axial spondyloarthritis. So again, coming back to inflammatory back pain, they typically have a moderate to good response to NSAIDs. They typically do have a positive family history for some feature of spondyloarthritis. It all runs in the family. On physical examination, you may or may not have some findings. But if you do, it is helpful. So in the first figure over here, you do see enthesitis of the heel of the Achilles tendon where it inserts on uh, in, in the bone. And then you have this asymmetric, predominantly lower extremity, large joint involvement, as opposed to rheumatoid arthritis, which is symmetric, right? It prefers the upper extremity compared to the lower extremity. You could also have uveitis or iritis, 
which is inflammation of the anterior aspect of the uvea, which gives a lot of pain, red eye, not your regular pink eye, it's a red eye, extreme photosensitivity, and the patient has to go to an ophthalmologist to get prednisone drops to relieve it. It could be associated with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And examination of the back, we don't have great likelihood ratios for this, but if you could palpate the SI joint to get a few clues. Unlike rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, where we have some biomarkers, laboratory diagnosis for axial spondyloarthritis is not great. We do have HLA-B27, but as you find out in the subsequent slides, about 20 to 30% of patients with axial spondyloarthritis do not have HLA-B27 positivity. You could have CRP or ESR elevated, but again, that's not a rule. So clinical criteria, clinical reasoning is very important in these cases. And of course, we have imaging, which we will talk a little more in details in the upcoming slides. Okay, so finally, as promised, I'm going to talk about the inflammatory back pain. So in this slide, you see three different criteria for inflammatory back pain, and I want to make it quick, easy, and simple. So let's concentrate on the most recent inflammatory back pain criteria by ASAS, which is to the extreme right. So the patient needs to fulfill at least four out of the five criteria in order to call them inflammatory back pain positive. The age of onset of back pain should be less than 40 years. It needs to have an insidious onset, not something sudden, like after a traumatic injury or a car accident. It needs to start insidiously and just continue. Improvement with exercise. Remember our case one, he really had to get up, stretch to, to feel better. No improvement with rest and pain at night. Again, going back to our case one, he had to get up usually in the second part of the night, move, stretch, and then only then can go back to sleep. The last one being pretty specific. Uh, if you look at all the other 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 five, the, the total of five criteria, the last one is pretty specific. So the reason why we gravitated towards the newer criteria is because the earlier criteria had uh, morning stiffness. And as we found out in studies, morning stiffness is not that specific for inflammatory back pain and axial spondyloarthritis. So we have gravitated away from it. So these are inflammatory back pain criteria. I'm spending a little more time on this because this is something that you want to ask your patients who has chronic low uh, back pain or hip pain or buttock pain. Um, coming to your clinic, uh, always suspect um, axial spondyloarthritis because if you see 100 patients with chronic back pain in a year, which is not, I think it's not pretty unusual for a primary care practitioner in a busy practice. Um, five patients out of those 100 people with chronic back pain will have axial spondyloarthritis, so something to keep in mind. Okay, 
So again, we are familiar with the picture on the left, right? The bamboo spine, the stooped over posture. Again, this is ankylosing spondylitis towards the end of the spectrum of axial spondyloarthritis. And you might have even seen the other photograph on your right. This is a gentleman who was in the Canadian Mounted Police. And as you can see over the years, his posture is stooped. And what you see in 1973, he's a little more upright because he had hip replacement surgery. Unfortunately, after the last photograph was taken in 1973, he passed away. And the reason was uh, the aortic root dysfunction, which is also a comorbidity seen in ankylosing spondylitis patients. So why do I keep talking about uveitis, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and reactive arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease? This is a talk of axial spondyloarthritis, right? Because all these conditions are genetically related. They have a close association. So whenever you suspect a patient with axial spondyloarthritis, it is good practice to elicit history uh, for these related conditions, not only in the person, but also first degree and second degree relatives. OK. Now let's talk about classification criteria. Um, let's start with classification criteria that are pretty old, 1984. Um, these are modified New York criteria for ankylosing spondylitis. And we no longer use these criteria, but the reason I am putting in this slide is look at the very last line. To call someone who has definite ankylosing spondylitis, they need to fulfill not only the clinical criteria, at least one of the clinical criteria, but also they need to have definite radiological criteria. They need to have sacroiliitis on their SI joint X-ray. And these are the four grades, uh, right? Grade one, two, three, four. As you walk through the grades, there is just more blurring and more irregularity that you would see in the SI joints, starting with grade one, minimal, if any, uh, some uh, sclerosis seen in grade two, maybe some irregularity, grade three, a little more, and grade four is ankylosis. But the problem with these criteria is you're just dealing with the tip of the iceberg. And let's talk about what lies beneath the ocean in the next criteria. But before we get there, let's introduce a new term. Okay, so let's take a step back. Let's look at this X-ray, right? Look at the right and the left sacroiliac joints. When this X-ray was shown to one of our radiologists, she said this is grade zero, and this could be grade one or two. So basically not sure if there is definite sacroiliitis, okay? So the question is, does this patient have non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Now this is a new term that I am introducing at this time. 
So to understand the term non radiographic axial spondyloarthritis better, let's put this X-ray into two clinical contexts. Context one. Let's imagine this patient is a female, 59 year old, has low back pain for the last 20 years. She fits maybe three or maybe four of the inflammatory back pain criteria. She's HLA-B27 negative. She has minimal response to NSAIDs and no other spondyloarthritis extraspinal features. So we have this patient and contrast it with a male, 32 year old, low back pain for three years, fulfills inflammatory back pain criteria, is HLA-B27 positive, good response to NSAIDs, and no other spondyloarthritis features in the cell for the family. Now, if we get MRIs for both this patient, it's pretty evident looking at the top MRI for patient two, the younger male, he has bone marrow edema and the dusting of the lymphocytes that you see uh, on the stir sequence. So, pattern recognition is important. It's important who to order the MRI in and then appropriately diagnose them even if the X-ray is kind of unsure. So this is the case two is um, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis because you didn't see much on the X-ray. The question that I always ask when I'm suspecting somebody with axial spondyloarthritis, the first question that comes to my mind is, can the back pain be explained by another condition? Maybe this about 60 year old female, right? She might have fibromyalgia, right? So taking the whole history is very important and not being fixated on axial spondyloarthritis. Okay, so that brings us to ASAS classification criteria, which we now use for diagnosing axial spondyloarthritis. Let's look at the slide for a moment. Couple of changes from the 1984 criteria, right? We changed the name. It's no longer called as ankylosing spondylitis. This is a large, this is an umbrella term which encompasses ankylosing spondylitis, but just as an end spectrum. We now call it as axial spondyloarthritis. And we have two arms to diagnose or classify a patient with axial spondyloarthritis. You either have the traditional imaging arm or you could have the clinical arm. So the stem of this classification criteria. In patients with back pain for more than three months and age of onset less than 45, you can apply these criteria. You take a history and a physical examination, and if there are features in, in the gray box that are highly suggestive for spondyloarthritis, you then wonder about imaging. You can either get X-ray, or if they are equivocal and you still feel that spondyloarthritis could still be possible, you then order a MRI. So the imaging arm could have either the X-ray or the MRI. However, patients could also be diagnosed with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis through the clinical arm. Over here, 
HLA-B27 plus other two features in the gray box could also give you the diagnosis. So this is kind of the whole spectrum of axial spondyloarthritis. Towards the um, right end, you see the radiographic stage or previously called as ankylosing spondylitis, where you have X-rays positive for sacroiliitis um, in, in the SI joint and maybe even L-spine changes with these enthesitis uh, that, that you see over here, the, um, the syndesmophytes that you see over here. So these are the radiographic changes. And then you have your non-radiographic stage in which the X-rays are negative or questionable, uh, but then because you had a strong suspicion, you went ahead and ordered the MRI which turned out to be positive, or they could enter the diagnosis through the clinical arm, the HLA-B27 route, where the MRI is negative, but HLA-B27 is positive, and they have more features to suggest axial spondyloarthritis. So if you think about the prevalence, I would say half and half, about 0.5% uh, in the general population present with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and about 0.5% have the radiographic stage. The total prevalence of axial spondyloarthritis in the US general population is about 1%. Okay. So that just goes on to show the similar thing. Let's talk about epidemiology, right? So, uh, the enhanced study showed us that about 20% of the US adults have chronic low back pain at some point in their life. That's a, that's a lot of folks uh, with low back pain, with chronic low back pain. Uh, five to 6% of the US population fulfill criteria of inflammatory back pain. So think about it. Not everybody who fulfills criteria for inflammatory back pain actually have axial spondyloarthritis, but you're getting closer, right? And about 1% of the general population has axial spondyloarthritis and half have, half out of those have ankylosing spondylitis. Okay. As we started to image the patients, as we started to use MRI and HLA-B27 in the diagnosis, what we figured out is this is no longer a man's only disease. And that's what was hammered in my, at least in my medical school. Well, you know, it's, it's a disease of men, typically younger men, right? This is no longer true. If you look at these German cohorts, and let's just concentrate on the third horizontal line, the percentage of females, right? If you see all comers for, um, for axial spondyloarthritis, you see 36%. If you look at ankylosing spondylitis, you will have 34 or 23%, depending upon what cohorts you're looking at. But if you look at non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, the number just jumped from 34 to 57%, right? So it's, I, I feel this is a gender justice issue that we are uh, talking about over here. Um, historically, 
we as rheumatologists have misdiagnosed this condition as being fibromyalgia maybe in women, mislabeling them um, and keeping them away from treatments which are so effective and we learn about it in the subsequent slides. So again, something to remember, uh, we have a new terminology, right? We are uh, moving away from ankylosing spondylitis. It is now radiographic or non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Um, and then um, the uh, females. So the gender ratio is actually one is to one. Uh, if you think about axial spondyloarthritis as a whole, it's no longer a man predominant disease. And this slide, I just threw in this slide uh, to drive home the point that ASAS has two classification criteria. You could either enter it through the back pain uh, path or you can enter the criteria, the peripheral spondyloarthritis criteria. If a patient has arthritis, enthesitis, inflammation where the tendon inserts on the bone or dactylitis, inflammation of the entire digit, plus one of the one or two of these spondyloarthritis features, you could also uh, fulfill classification criteria for peripheral spondyloarthritis namely psoriatic arthritis, IVD associated arthritis or reactive arthritis. So just driving home the point that this is the entire spectrum and today we are just talking about axial spondyloarthritis, but don't forget the, re the related conditions. This is again a concept diagram to show that we are just talking about axial spondyloarthritis, which is a part of a bigger spectrum. Again, coming back to axial spondyloarthritis. This is a patient's journey. Imagine this is a river and let's just Talk about the different stages of axial spondyloarthritis. Let's concentrate on this big chunk over here, inflammatory back pain. And as we spoke in the previous slide, not all patients with inflammatory back pain progress to axial spondyloarthritis, but quite a few do. And that's why the inflammatory back pain criteria are great if you suspect somebody with this condition. So, you see um, about 15% of inflammatory back pain patients go on to develop axial spondyloarthritis. They start as non-radiographic. Usually some of them just go into spontaneous remission and they are fine. The, but uh, most of them continue. Either they continue as non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and never progress to that stooped over position or ankylosing spondylitis about half of them do progress uh, to ankylosing spondylitis and uh, unfortunately a few of them um, have late complications of ankylosing spondylitis. Now let's talk about the extra musculoskeletal manifestations which highlights why rheumatologists um, need to work with not only primary care practitioners, but also ophthalmologists, GI doctors, um, dermatologists, and of course, radiologists. Um, so 
We spoke about anterior uveitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and psoriasis as being associated extraarticular manifestations. Uh, but don't forget the widened aortic root, the aortic sufficiency, and one of the reasons why um, the uh, the patient in the photograph, uh, the Canadian Mounted Police gentleman, uh, passed away. Patients could have pulmonary fibrosis. They could have quadra equina syndrome, although these are rare. Acute anterior uveitis. About 50% of patients with axial spondyloarthritis at some point in their life develop anterior uveitis. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The studies show that 5 to 8% of patients with axial spondyloarthritis have a diagnosed uh, have a diagnosis of either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. There was this interesting study done where patients who didn't have any overt signs and symptoms of IBD but had axial spondyloarthritis were scoped. And what was seen, these patients do have subclinical gut inflammation in about 45 to 60% of these patients, right? So something to keep in mind, right? All these conditions are related. Skin psoriasis. Skin psoriasis is pretty common in the general population. About 3% of the general population has skin psoriasis. But if you look at axial spondyloarthritis patients, this rises from 3% to 10%. So I always um, um, tell my residents to look at the scalp the hairline, uh, the intergluteal fold, the fingernails, the behind the ears, the umbilicus. These are the places psoriasis loves to hide. Okay. After talking about the extra articular manifestations, let's talk about comorbidities associated with axial spondyloarthritis. Many comorbidities over here, right? But what I would like to focus on today is depression. Imagine this 30 or a 40 year old person coming to your clinic, being diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, has been dealing with chronic low back pain. They are in the prime of their lives, right? They are uh, trying to do well in their careers. They are trying to build a family and they're dealing with this chronic low back pain. So a lot of patients with axial spondyloarthritis do have depression. Unfortunately, in the rheumatology clinic, um, given the pace, sometimes it's rheumatologists shy away from eliciting the mental health condition for the patient, which is so important. And that's why we rely on our primary care colleagues uh, to uh, appropriately uh, diagnose and treat the concomitant depression. So something very important comorbidity to keep in mind. And osteoporosis, right? So if you think about it, the, the strong looking bamboo spine is actually a facade. Uh, these, these bones are pretty uh, uh, fragile and uh, axial spondyloarthritis could be associated with fractures. Um, so something to think about, something to screen your patients for. Talking about comorbidities, a very important 
comorbid condition, fibromyalgia called as central sensitization, also uh, associated with nosyplastic pain. Fibromyalgia is associated with at least somewhere between 6 to 50% of patients with axial spondyloarthritis do have concomitant fibromyalgia, which sometimes makes the diagnosis even tougher, especially in females, where the prevalence of fibromyalgia is high. So there was this study, especially in females, and you can see about 50% there was a prevalence of fibromyalgia and 50% of patients, female patients with spondyloarthritis. And the, the, the slide as a whole is to just make a point that not only spondyloarthritis, but also lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's osteoarthritis, psoriatic arthritis, also associated with fibromyalgia. So if a patient has fibromyalgia, I tend not to just hone on their fibromyalgia, but think about other causes. And when I'm treating my patients with axial spondyloarthritis, I want to make sure what is active? Is it the fibromyalgia piece or is it the uh, axial spondyloarthritis uh, piece? And then try to tailor treatments accordingly. And this is a study um, from uh, South Africa, uh, which drives home the same point. There are patients with fibromyalgia and patients without fibromyalgia. And the BASDI, BASFI, and quality of life measures uh, are given to the left. And what you see is patients with fibromyalgia score twice as high on BASDI, BASFI, and quality of life scores. So our scores are not perfect, unfortunately. So really, it comes back to your clinical history, physical examination, your clinical gestalt. Okay. I know we've covered a lot. Just a few more slides to go. Let's talk about treatments. The goal of therapy for axial spondyloarthritis is to reduce pain, improve physical function, improve quality of life, including fatigue, Treat conditions such as uveitis, IBD, and psoriasis. Treat comorbidities, especially depression, fibromyalgia, reduce their impact, prolong life expectancy. This is a busy slide, but this is just to drive the point that we have come a long way as a rheumatology community. We started with injecting gold, and look at us today. We have lots and lots of biologics. Right, and many of them are extremely beneficial in patients with axial spondyloarthritis, and therefore I make a case of um, appropriately diagnosing, early diagnosis, and prompt referral to rheumatology. Um, so the first line of treatment, because you know, uh, you'll say, okay, great, I diagnosed uh, my patient with axial spondyloarthritis, but the wait to rheumatology is three to four months, and I'm being really kind over here saying three to four months. Uh, but what do you do in the interim, right? Uh, so you have NSAIDs, um, continuous dose of NSAIDs, so naproxen 500 milligram twice a day or meloxicam 15 milligram, a scheduled prescribed NSAID will help. Physical therapy will help, and I would suggest against systemic glucocorticoids. 
So this will help. This is the first line treatment for axial spondyloarthritis. If they have peripheral manifestations, uh, some local glucocorticoids injections could be offered to the patient. Uh, a SI joint, uh, a radio uh, X-ray guided SI joint injection can sometimes be useful if there is isolated sacroiliitis. So this is part one. Part two really starts when the patient comes to the rheumatology office and tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. We have five in this class. Um, you must be familiar with adalumimab and infliximab. Uh, one is a sub-Q and one is a IV uh, form. It's pretty beneficial. If the patient has uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease, we prefer the adalumimab or other monoclonal antibodies over uh, the receptor antibodies. And this is a slide to show you how our therapies have emerged and kind of exploded in the last few years. So this is the TNF inhibitor class, which works really well for our uh, population. And then we have this new class, interleukin-17 inhibitors. Uh, the ones that are approved for axial spondyloarthritis currently are ixikizumab and secukinumab. And then we have JAK inhibitors, the uh, Janus kinase inhibitor. Um, you might have heard about tofacitinib, Zeljans, uh, when uh, you uh, might be using it for COVID in the inpatient uh, system. And this is just to drive home the point that these drugs are not only effective in your radiographic, but also non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. So what if the patient fails TNF inhibitors? And that happens, right? Subsequently, it happens. So we have two kinds of patients. One, that do extremely well. They come back and tell me, you're the best doctor in the world. However flattered I am, I know it's not true. And in, in the next few years, they come back and say, well, this medication is not working for me as it used to. So in some patients, it's within a year or two. In some patients, it's even five to six. I have a couple of patients who are on the same biologic for nine or 10 years and they are doing well. So it just depends on so many factors that are unknown to us at this point. However, there are a few patients who never respond to my first line of therapy and then I switch uh, the class. While I'm treating my patient with axial spondyloarthritis, I always try to remember uh, getting a good history, trying to separate it from fibromyalgia. Um, and this audience is well aware of the non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic therapy for fibromyalgia or central sensitization. Coming to the very end of the talk, delaying diagnosis probably the most important piece. As suggested earlier, there is a global mean delay to diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis about 6.7 years. One study suggests even up to 14 years delay in the US. Because of this delay, there is worsened disease activity, worse physical function, 
more radiographic progression, more depression, more work disability, higher health costs, overall a negative psychological impact and worse quality of life. Some of the factors of delaying diagnosis are lack of awareness of the disease, lack of nomenclature, uh, lack of awareness that the gender ratio is one is to one. Lack of knowledge that even a negative HLA-B27 status person could have axial spondyloarthritis. And on the rheumatology part, I think we haven't made progress with specific referral condition, referral recommendations. We don't have a form saying, you know, if you have one, two, and three, send them over to rheumatology. That's high likely that this is axial spondyloarthritis. We are still uh, not there yet. Uh, there is a lack of validated diagnostic criteria. We spoke about classification criteria, but we didn't speak about diagnostic criteria because there aren't any. Um, and no biomarkers. And then there are patient factors, right? There is the socioeconomic status, there is education level, so many barriers uh, for diagnosis. And this slide just goes on to show the same, that there is lack of familiarity with uh, inflammatory back pain and non-radiographic disease in general, uh, not only in primary care practitioners, but osteopaths, pain clinic, chiropractor, uh, orthopedic doctors, um, and females unfortunately tend to have a longer path to the diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis compared to their male counterparts. African-American and Hispanic-Americans are less likely to be evaluated as well. And we already spoke about this, but females, there is an issue in getting diagnosis of females with axial spondyloarthritis earlier. And of course, we spoke about lack of awareness, but then there are other factors. It's more confusing because there is a greater overlap with depression and fibromyalgia. There is, uh, even if you treat patients, female patients, and I do have female patients with axial spondyloarthritis in my practice, and just compared to the male counterparts, their response to biologics, unfortunately, is lower. Um, they have more poor quality of life. There is higher disease activity, more peripheral joint involvement. And of course, there is less HLA-B27 positivity and less radiographic progression. So all these factors contribute to the delay of diagnosis, specifically in females. Let's end this uh, grand round session with a quick case. 32-year-old female presents with persistent heel pain despite NSAIDs, use of a heel pad, aggressive physical therapy, has difficulty ambulating and the pain is so bad that she has to take time off of work. Physical examination does reveal a tender, swollen Achilles tendon with some plantar uh, fascia tenderness at the insertion point. X-ray of the foot is pretty unrevealing. She's appropriately referred to rheumatology. Rheumatology visit on further questioning. We elicit lower back pain and indeed she does have lower back pain, but she always attributed it to something at work, lack of ergonomic chair at work maybe. Um, 
The next things that I would recommend for this patient is getting a CRP or maybe even an ESR, getting a HLA-B27 and start with imaging, maybe ultrasound of uh, the heel that I can do easily in my office or maybe a MRI, not only of the heel, but MRI of the pelvis and lumbar X-ray if needed. And we've already spoken about treatments, but before treatments comes the diagnosis. So over here you see the power Doppler and um, pretty significant for something going on, some inflammatory process going on and on the MRI. So this is the ultrasound on the MRI in the lower panel over here. You again see the bone marrow edema, the same lymphocytes dusting over here. And then because the patient has this enthesitis, peripheral enthesitis, you've also got ESR and CRP, which are tad bit elevated. HLA-B27 is negative, and because you've attended today's grand rounds, you're not surprised by that. You're okay because you know that HLA-B27 could be negative in your axial spondyloarthritis patients. And then you do some imaging. Uh, X-rays um, are symmetric and well-maintained uh, SI joints, and nothing really remarkable about this X-ray. Maybe a grade one, not sure. And then you do the MRI and what you see over here on the stir image is again the bone marrow edema. So you diagnose her with non radiographic axial spondyloarthritis with axial and peripheral manifestations, sacroiliitis and helianthesitis. You continue NSAIDs, then you further progress to do TNF inhibitors or interleukin 17 therapy. With that last slide, let's just summarize everything. Axial spondyloarthritis is relatively common immune mediated inflammatory condition occurring in up to 1%, 1.4% of the general population. Remember to ask about inflammatory back pain questions and think about sacroiliitis. Inflammatory back pain questionnaire is age less than 40, insidious onset, better with movement, worse with rest or immobilization. And remember the night pain, remember case one and the annoyed wife, remember that scenario. Advancing imaging, advanced imaging MRI will help you diagnose the cases that you won't be able to diagnose with a simple SI X-ray. Uh, so proceed to an MRI. Axial spondyloarthritis is associated with uveitis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, and have comorbidities such as depression and fibromyalgia, which could have a significant impact not only on diagnosis, life expectancy, and quality of life, but treatments. We have come a long way from gold to fancy biologics, and that again begs um, the, uh, that again really begs. Uh, the argument to send these patients to rheumatology. Um, and um, education of healthcare providers is the key. And if you are struggling with a diagnosis, contact your local friendly rheumatologist who's standing by to help you. Thank you.
Great. Many thanks, Dr. Key Walker, uh, for helping us feel more empowered um, to find and manage this relatively common condition. I'll invite um, questions and comments from our online audience uh, and also here in the room. Any questions in the room? Thanks, Dr. Kowalker. Um, this is really making me realize as a primary care physician that I have not been as attuned as I should be, despite one of our residents' quality improvement projects, to be aware of this. Um, so the response to NSAIDs um, just has me kind of wondering, and I guess really the question is, how often does just mechanical low back pain, this big, you know, black box diagnosis that we have respond to NSAIDs? And then is there really like something dramatically different about the response between the axial spondyloarthropathies and mechanical low back pain? Great question. Um, so let's first define a good response to NSAIDs before I answer the second question. Uh, good response is defined as more than 50% improvement. Um, at least for two months, that's uh, pretty classic what is seen for axial spondyloarthritis. Um, in my uh, clinical practice, when I see patients with mechanical back pain and they've been to several uh, practitioners before, they don't uh, do so well with NSAIDs compared to patients with axial spondyloarthritis and inflammatory back pain. Um, so our patients with axial spondyloarthritis do have that sustained good response. Even if they are on biologics, they continue to take NSAIDs. So it's it's pretty dramatic and drastic compared to your regular mechanical back pain, pulled a muscle, uh, physical therapy and activity would help more compared to NSAIDs. And unfortunately, I am not recalling any studies because they are difficult to do. I think uh, just thinking about how effective NSAIDs are in both these cases. I think we have a lot of co-treatment uh, things happening in the background, which will make it difficult to sparse it out. Uh, I'll take a question here while we're waiting to see if there's any others in the room. Thanks for the better understanding of non-radiographic um, spondyloarthritis, um, particularly on the X-ray, which might then prompt us for an MRI if we have sustained suspicion. And just curious in your experience or in studies, um, how often we might expect the MRI to lead us astray. Um, and I guess number one, meaning perhaps the MRI itself is falsely negative, again, sort of non-radiographic, or whether we ever incidentally see things like subtle edema that might be a, a false positive. Excellent questions. So yes, MRI is highly sensitive, so you're going to see more false positives than false negatives. Uh, what I like to do is read my own MRIs. I try to read my own MRIs, I would say, uh, rather than just looking at the report. That is one. Uh, the second is I didn't go into these specific criteria, but there are criteria how to diagnose uh, this bone marrow edema on the MRI. So it talks about uh, having um, the size and number of sections involved, and then you can come to a diagnosis. So you're trying to eliminate um, either false positives and false negatives, I guess. Um, there, there are very interesting studies done in Europe, which 
screened, which um, they did MRIs on these uh, very uh, fit and healthy athletes. Uh, and they were training for Olympics. OK, that that kind of level of uh, activity. And when they did these MRIs, a significant proportion met our MRI criteria for axial spondyloarthritis, which drives home the point that clinical reasoning, history and physical examination is so important. Putting the MRI into the right context is important. And then, of course, infections, if you have uh, uh, unilateral uh, changes on the SI joint of the MRI. I want to be suspicious. Is it brucella? Is it tuberculosis? I don't want to miss that out as well. Great, thank you. It's extremely helpful. And I have a question from our online audience wondering if sulfasalazine is ever a therapy indicated for this condition. Great question. So sulfasalazine and methotrexate were great, but for peripheral spondyloarthritis, not for axial spondyloarthritis. There have been prior studies done to show that they are not efficacious. Great, thank you. Um, perhaps I'll close with one last question. Um, any particular tips with regard to finding this diagnosis in an older population, um, either because the diagnosis has been delayed or also wondering, does it ever present beyond this sort of 40 to 45 year expectation? Great question. So I would say a minority of patients uh, in the geriatric age group, uh, and I don't want to define the geriatric <laughs> age group, um, but let's say above the age of 40 uh, and the geriatric age group. So there have been cases you do diagnose once in a blue moon, you do diagnose this condition, but usually what we see is they were undiagnosed or untreated. The pain started <clears throat> in their early 40s or late 30s, and they just have ignored it because of lack of education, or maybe they haven't presented, maybe males, uh, you know, no, I haven't seen a physician in a while, right? We we get that in, in the VA population, particularly we did see patients who who were diagnosed later on in their life. Um, and unfortunately, when you have this disease going on for a long period of time, treatments may or may not be as effective. Well, many thanks, Dr. Kiwaker. Very informative. Thank you.